I've been to every baseball stadium and 21 old ones. I've been to 51 stadiums. And when I go in, I just kind of, the history, knowing, you know, Babe Ruth and Ernie Banks, Don Drysdale, these just, it's kind of cool. But I get excited about that. But just think about this. Standing in the place where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Something about that that just overrides all the baseball stadiums. Standing in the place that Jesus taught and actually healed people kind of gets me excited. There's nothing special about that place, just knowing the stories that occurred at those very places right there in Jerusalem. You see, where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac is where the Temple Mount is. It's where it was built. And the whole Jewish faith began right there in Jerusalem. I'm taking you way back here to Genesis. And God said, hey, just love me, obey me, and I'll take care of you. I'll bless you if you don't then it won't be good. Well, you know how the story goes. In Exodus, the Israelites were, the Jews were taken captive by the Egyptians and used as slaves for year after year after year. Moses came along and Israelites repented and God brought them out of Egypt. The problem is, they had left Jerusalem and Judea. And they began to be scattered south of Jerusalem. They were spread out. This whole process continued over and over throughout the Old Covenant. 587, Nebuchadnezzar came in. Once again, Jews were not responding to God, weren't being obedient after Moses had received the Ten Commandments. They weren't obeying the Ten Commandments. God caused them to disperse again. So they ended up going east into the Mesopotamian region, which was like Iran and Iraq. They began to spread out there. Then you go through all the different ages of of time and the Romans came in and they even got dispersed some more so now they're over into Greece and to Italy and they're spread out watch look at this map real quick this is map this is what they call the Jewish diaspora and it shows right here this is Mesopotamia on the far right You'll see Jerusalem, it's right here, just east of the Mediterranean Sea. This is where it all started right here. This is where the Temple Mount is. And now they're all the way down here in the south into Africa. They're all the way up here in the north into Europe, Portugal, Spain, which you know today, Greece, Italy. They're up here into Syria. They're all over the place. Even today, they're dispersed. 
because they were disobedient to God. The whole World War II thing was about that right there. Because they were all over the place. Hitler wanted to get rid of the Jews. I mean, we it's still happening today. So, I say all that, I say all that to bring us to Acts chapter 6. Because you have to keep in mind what has actually happened to the church. Just to like bring you up to speed, Jesus ascended and then he, the church started, Pentecost came in, they're healing people. Peter and John went before the Sanhedrin. They said, stop talking about Jesus. They continued to talk about Jesus. Then they got scourged. Now, and in the midst of all that, it says the church keeps growing, the church keeps growing, the church keeps growing. If the church keeps growing, there's an administrative problem. Watch in Acts chapter 6. It says this in verse 1. In those days, if Jesus, if Jesus was crucified, we believe around 30 AD, 30 AD, Pentecost happened, all those things that we've talked about in the first five chapters probably happened within the first year. So now if we take the whole book of Acts and we read it and we start putting things together, we begin to see that now the timeline is moving along in those days was probably in reference to possibly 33 to 34 A.D., three or four years after Jesus is crucified, Pentecost has occurred and the church began in its infancy stage. It says, as the disciples were increasing in number. Do you remember what we said? I know I'm going slow here. Uh, do you remember what we said at the beginning of Acts? Disciples are learners. Like the 12 disciples, they were learners of Jesus. They identified with Jesus. Then they became apostles. Apostles were those that actually taught. They had learned the things from Jesus directly. And now these 12 disciples became apostles. The Spirit came in them. They had the ability to remember things that had occurred during the three years. They had the Spirit in them that allowed them to heal people and do some powerful things, do some great signs that people could see only came from the Lord. And so now you sit here and ask this question, as the disciples were increasing in number, disciples of who? Disciples of the apostles? Yeah, I think it's referring to the disciples of apostles who were teaching them about Jesus. So now all the learners are increasing. You're a disciple. Today, I might be a teacher. I might be a teacher, but there are many teachers in this room right here, which is obvious. And so we become disciples, not really of Rusty, not necessarily of Luke, not necessarily of Keith, not necessarily of Matt but you become disciples of Jesus. And that's what we're referring to. It says they're increasing in number. There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, let me explain the context 
of what just occurred here in that statement. They had witnessed incredible growth. Incredible growth. So obviously as they grow, there's this increase in administrative responsibilities. How do you teach? How do you take care of all the needs if it says they're growing by thousands? Thousands. How do you deal with that? How does the church deal with that? Uh, this particular complaint came from the Hellenistic Jews, which was those that probably were from the area of Greece. Remember that the empires, Greece was the first empire, then the Romans came in. So they had learned, the Jews were up in this empire and they had learned the Greek language. And they spoke Greek. In Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, they spoke either Arabic or they spoke Hebrew. But they had different languages. Now, all of a sudden, a group of Jews who believed the good news, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, had come back to the area, had come back to Jerusalem. And as much as you would like to say the church was unified, I definitely believe they were unified. It says it over and over and over because it says they were increasing in number. You don't increase in number if you're divisive. But there were different cultures now. Different languages that were happening, different behavioral things. You know what I'm talking about. And so they naturally, they would naturally cling to those groups. And do you realize that they say during that time period, there were about 8,000 different synagogues in the area? 8,000. 8,000 priests in the area that were trying to administrate this growing church. That's crazy to think about. But they all had their different cultures, different languages, and different way of doing things. But it says right here, there's a, a complaint. <laughs> a complaint in the church. Imagine that. Yeah. Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked. They had to deal with this issue. And so now they had to come up with this plan. It says in verse 2, it says, The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. That, that, <laughs> that, that's interesting. Pastors use that verse all the time and makes it sound like they don't want to do the work. But here's, here's what it's saying. That Jewish community, we've already learned that they brought everything together. And when they brought everything together, here's what actually happened. They had two different gifts that they gave the resident members and the non-resident members. The kappa, the kappa, was something that they passed out every Friday. 
like the church, remember the church was giving everything that they have, then they were dividing it up among the people. <laughs> I said to Keith, that sounds almost like socialism. But he's like, no, it, 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 that's a whole nother thing. Because socialism has a hierarchy that the upper guys get more than the lower guys. It's not the same thing here. But they did share their goods. And so the kappa was something that they gave to all the resident members, those of the Hebraic Jews. And here's what it was. Every Friday they would give them enough money for 14 meals for the week. They literally, it's like, you guys give everything here. I take it and I divide it up and I give you food money every week. <laughs> Think about that. I can't even get you to sign up for Holiday World. <laughs> what a headache, right? But, you know, you got like 150 people in here and we're talking thousands. They distributed this money every Friday so that they could get four, two meals a day, purchase two meals a day. Then the, the Tumra was not actually money, but for those that were non-resident, non-resident believers in Christ, they would give them food and drink on a daily basis. The first one, the cuppa, that's a headache. The second one, I just don't know how you do that. It's like meals on wheels and getting it out to all those people. So now you've got two different dispersions of funds that have been collected and you tell me there's not going to be any issues, there's not going to be any complaints, I promise you there's going to be complaints. The Hellenistic families are saying, we're not getting the same as them. And what you have to understand here is when they, when they say that, it's like the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples said it's not right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. In other words, we were called as apostles to teach the Word of God. To teach about... Now look, at this point, 33, 34 AD, not one single book of the New Testament had been written yet. So we're supposed to like teach the Word of God. I have the Word of God, the Bible here, and I'm able to like read it and be able to teach it. But now these apostles are responsible for preaching and teaching publicly so that people can hear the message and that, that it grows in numbers. I hate that question. How's Leavener doing? How many people do you have coming? I really don't care. I just want to teach the good news. I just want to teach the gospel and if somehow the Spirit causes things to happen, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. But now, they're sitting here teaching the Word, proclaiming the Word, preaching the Word, and if they're worried about somebody not getting enough here or there or there, they really can't focus on the teaching. At one point, uh, our board, when we started, said, what if... What if we just had a, a pastor that could just focus on teaching? Didn't have to worry about all the other stuff. 
you know what I'm talking about in the church, that could just literally just focus on teaching. And that's literally what they're saying here. If we want to be able to be in tune with the Spirit and be able to deliver the Word to these people, it's not that we don't want to do the work. It's just we can't do it. It's not, it's not possible. So we've got to figure out a different plan. It says this, verse 3, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit. Those would be the believers. Believers have the Spirit. And wisdom. Hmm. Not one and the same. Be full of the Spirit, plus have wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Somebody that you trust to help with the distribution of the finances and the food. They literally laid down here's the basic, here's the basic qualifications that we need in these seven people is they have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for their sins, and that He was buried, rose again, sitting next to the Father, and He sent His Spirit now to live inside of us. Find that person, and find somebody who's wise. They had to be known for their wisdom, their practical know-how. One would assume that the seven would take over the administration of this whole distribution service and that they would balance out the complaint that the Hellenistic Jews are making. It says in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That basically concludes their whole proposal to the church by selecting seven Apostle, the seven apostles were free to be able to like study and teach. That's their primary responsibility. Verse 5, it says this. This proposal pleased the whole company. <laughs> In two verses, they said, you guys select seven men who are of the Spirit, who are wise, and we'll give them the authority to do and take care of all these issues. And it says the whole community was pleased. In three verses, there was a complaint, a solution, and they were happy. Did they vote? <laughs> Did they vote? No, they just said, yeah, that works. We, we trust you men with this plan. So now they literally have a plan, and it says this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't choose the Holy Spirit. He was a man full of faith and had the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. A convert from Antioch. That means that he was a Gentile. Wait, wait, wait. This is a Jewish community. This is a, the gospel, the good news, has not gone out to the Gentiles yet. 
Paul's not in this story yet. Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, they're not in this story yet. How did this Nicholas guy get in here? Well, obviously, there are some Gentiles, and we saw it even during Jesus' time. A Roman soldier that came to believe. And Nicholas is one of those men that, hey, he's going to be sensitive to the Hellenistic Jews. And so they chose him, Nicholas, as a convert to be part of that seven. It's interesting that Stephen was named first because he's what this chapter and the whole next chapter is about. He met the qualifications, being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Luke listed him first, and it was no accident. Then next came Philip. Philip, uh, he too would be a major figure in the story of expanding the Christian witness. You'll see some of that in chapter 8. But then you get to the other five. The other five really play out no further role in the book of Acts. You don't hear about them. There's no additional information about them. You just know that they were chosen because they had the Spirit and they were wise. And guess what? Who selected these seven men? Not the apostles. The church did. It says, you select, we'll give them the authority to eat to take care of this issue. The church was not afraid to adjust their structure. They were doing it one way, and now they came up with a plan to do it another way. Huh. Imagine that. In order to make room for a growing ministry. I think sometimes when uh, structure and ministry, they, they conflict, this gives us an opportunity to trust God for a solution. That's a good thing. If it becomes dependent upon man to do that, I think that's where the church gets into trouble. But if we can come become dependent upon God leading us and showing us how to lead and to direct we're all the better. The cool thing is the apostles, they had the authority over the church, but they were not afraid at all to share some of that authority with the rest of the church. We'll put you in charge. You can do this. God's gifted you. He's given you wisdom. You have the Spirit in you who talks to you. You're capable of doing this. That's the deal. Expectations of the church. <laughs> Expectations of the church as an institution, as an institution, have really grown in our culture. And the many programs that the churches do, they've added to their structure over the years, has totally changed the church. You think about the expectations that you put on the pastor. Hospital visits, uh, weddings, funerals, uh, small group 
ministry, age group ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, senior adult ministry, outreach, committees, meetings, budgets, all these things, the programs, the marketing, the record keeping, those are all expectations of the current church on the staff, right? They've got to do all that. That list right there doesn't even include the two things that we were talking about in here. Teaching the Word of God and meeting the needs of the people. Yet somehow the church has built this expectation that that's what they're supposed to do. When really in Acts chapter 6 it says, hey, we're going to do two things. We're going to teach the Word of God and we're going to take care of people's needs. That's it. And it's not dependent upon the apostles to do it by themselves. In fact, if they have the Spirit and they're wise, we can enlist other people to do all that stuff. The, I, look, I look at the beauty of this group right here and I go, it happens right here. You're crazy if you think I do all that stuff. I sit here and watch you all do that, which is the way it's designed to be right there in Acts chapter 6. No, I, you honestly think that I've organized all these small groups in the room? Maybe one or two, the high school kids, the junior high kids, but the rest, it's all been organic. It, they just had a Roman study in there. He didn't even ask me if he could do it. He just did it. They had a group Friday night. Just all of a sudden, hey, let's get together and let's talk about Romans. They didn't ask me. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it's supposed to be. The church has the authority, the same spirit. Now watch this. Verse 6, it says, They had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's typically what you do when you enlist people to become deacons, servants in the church. The leadership comes and prays over them and lays their hands on them and calls them out as servants. And it's like, doesn't that naturally happen? <laughs> don't, don't, we have all sorts of deacons in this room right here. There's a group that gets here every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, unloads the trailer, sets it up, moves every chair, and then puts it all back together again. You should go and lay hands on them and call them deacons. No, they just do that. They just do that. It says, verse 7, So the word of God spread... The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. <laughs> that, here's, here's the beauty of that statement right there. Because if you go back to verse 1 that we just read just a few minutes ago, it says they were growing in their numbers. Then there was a complaint. The complaint was dealt with, and guess what? And the word of God spread, and disciples in Jerusalem increased. The complaint is sandwiched between, hey, we're growing good things, God's doing great things, and hey, we're growing, God's doing great things. In the middle of all that. 
They figured it out. And then we get to verse 8, and it switches gears. Chapter 6 not real long. Hang with me. It says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, back to Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That's the first person mentioned, aside from the apostles, who was doing miracles and great signs. So not only was it now the apostles, but it was appointed a man full of spirit and wisdom that's doing great signs. The spirit and power are closely linked and led him to perform signs and wonders among the people. Verse 9, it says, opposition arose. Of course it did. When good things happen, the evil one doesn't want it. Anytime somebody tells me that they're going to start a Roman study, I think Ryan said he was going to start one with his family, I'm like, dude, just be ready. Because as soon as you start that Roman study, the enemies come knocking on your door, dude. I promise you. He will come knocking on your door. And he will mess with you and he will mess with your family. He'll mess with you through your family. I promise you. That's what he does. It says, opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue. Oh yeah, it's one of those thousands of synagogues. Composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. Remember, they came from all over the place. The Jews like were spread out, dispersed, spread out, come back together. It happened over and over and over again. And they begin to argue with Stephen. <laughs> Luke named it the synagogue of the freedman, which indicates that many of its members were formerly and may have been slaves. At one point, they were so all the slaves, they have something in common, and they got together and they started their own synagogue. The different culture, different mindset. Luke called them the freedman synagogue. It's probably Jews that came from Africa and Egypt. Verse 10, it says, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. They picked up argument with Stephen. And Stephen, in his spirit of God and his wisdom, spoke and they couldn't argue against him. If you're, <laughs> you know what happens if you're unable to stand up against a man's wisdom in history? <laughs> you kill him. That's typically what happens. That's what happened back then. They had a desire to kill Stephen because they couldn't speak against him. They did the same thing with Jesus, right? Jesus spoke very clearly and they did the same thing. You'll watch the same pattern happens here with Stephen that it happened with Jesus. In verse 11 it says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They literally hired false witnesses to testify against Stephen. Same thing they did to Jesus. Let's make up some lies about Stephen and we'll sow it among the people and then everyone will believe it. 
Verse 12, it says, They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> they got the crowd to buy into what they were selling. And now, the third thing that they did that was exactly the same as Jesus, they got him to be tried before the Sanhedrin. A person who's able to speak out of wisdom is going to be opposed. Verse 13 says, They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. In other words, he's teaching Jesus and he's going to wipe out the law that Moses has given us. Jesus is like, hey, I take care of the law for you. You've got a spirit inside of you now. You're no longer under the Ten Commandments. <laughs> that You know how that went over. Hey, Stephen's standing there. This is great. We've we got like two, two verses left. Stephen's standing there, and, and he saw himself facing the same predicament as the prophet Jeremiah. Watch this. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, and Jeremiah says this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place, the temple. This is the, he says, uh, do not trust deceitful words, chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago, Abraham, Moses, but look up, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Stephen's literally saying the same thing. If you guys don't get this right, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the one that came, this temple's going to be destroyed. It's the same thing Jeremiah warned him about. If you don't listen to God, the temple's going to be destroyed. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. It's about to be destroyed again in 70 A.D. Stephen's warning them what Jesus has already said. He's standing there before the Sanhedrin. In the last verse, he says this, And all who are sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The Sanhedrin... The people that want to stone Stephen are looking at him intently in his face. Here's the crazy thing is, they're the ones that said, he's wanting to go against what Moses gave us. What do we remember about Moses? Moses got the Ten Commandments, and when he came down off the mountain, his face was shining. 
they sit there and brought the name of Moses up and they're looking at Stephen wanting to kill him. And they sit there and say, he's got the face of an angel. Is there irony there? (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Watch. The first verse, the next chapter, 7 1 says, Are these things true? The high priest asked. He looks at Stephen in the eye and says, Is this true? Is what they're saying? These lies? He doesn't say that. All these things that they're saying about you, is this what you're saying? Is this what you're doing? He's the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin. And he's, this is protocol. We're now going to give you a chance to speak. And this is where I leave you. Chapter 7. Stephen gets to present the gospel one more time. He gets one more chance. Don't miss it next week because it's amazing. Father, I thank you for uh, the church. There's no doubt that there's going to be issues in the church. There's going to be hurt feelings. There's going to be even injustice. There's going to be forgetfulness. There's going to be expectations. I pray that uh, the Spirit that lives in your church, the Spirit that lives in each individual in this room right here, that you will increase us with wisdom and understanding. Will you give us understanding and wisdom today? that we as a community will continue to learn together and meet the needs of each other together. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.